Welcome to the Why It Works podcast. I'm Joe Kwan, your host. Together, we'll pull back the curtain to reveal the hidden principles behind why things work. Things work for a reason. Let's find out why. Today's podcast is sponsored by Mizzen and Maine, next generation dress shirts that breathe, stretch, and wick away moisture. They require no ironing, no dry cleaning, and are machine washable. For a limited time, on orders of over $100, listeners of Why It Works will receive $25 off. To receive your discount, go to the show notes at www.joquanjo.com slash whyitworks and click on the Mizzen and Main link in the sponsor section. Here with us today is Linda Spiegel, job search coach and resume writer. As a human resources executive, Linda extensively recruited, interviewed, and hired thousands of talented professionals. She founded Rising Star Resumes to leverage her unique perspective on how companies view candidates. Linda also writes about HR and careers for the Wall Street Journal Experts blog. We speak to Linda from her home in New York City on a brisk autumn day. Welcome, Linda, to the Why It Works podcast, and thank you for being here. Well, thank you so much for having me, Joe. I'm super excited to talk to you about careers. Great. You know a lot about the ins and outs of the hiring and job search process. What are some of the most fundamental misunderstandings that people have about how hiring actually works? Okay, most people think that when they see an interesting job posting and they click on upload your resume and cover letter that an actual human being is looking at it and is going to say, wow, this cover letter really resonates with me and I'm going to call this person in for an interview. And that could not be farther from the truth. Unfortunately, and this is something I'm very much opposed to, but I'm in the minority in the recruiting world. There's a software called ATS, Applicant Tracking System Software, and KPMG, where you work, uses it, and so do most large companies. So it's a piece of software that's parsing your resume. Mm -hmm. Um, I think I read a statistic once that only 30% of resumes pass through the ATS into an actual human being's uh, uh, inbox. And one of the things that people don't know is that if you PDF your resume, it's very likely that the ATS a particular employer is using can't read a PDF. So you might be the perfect person for a job and nobody ever saw the resume. PDF's bad. (laughs) You know, I just the other day had a client say to me, why wouldn't I PDF a resume? And I said, well, who do you, you know, why do you PDF a document? It's protection. It's protection, Right. Right. What do you think, like Russian hackers or evil gnomes are going to go in there? I really want to screw up this person's resume. Not only that, ATS will reformat the, the Word document resume that it receives anyway into its own flowchart. Right, so right. Don't do it. <laughs> no yeah, I, I think that's a wonderful insight. I mean, I, I had heard uh, from others and read a little bit about the whole applicant tracking system, but I had no idea that even the format of, of the document that you submit your resume in could make a difference. Don't make it harder on yourself, right? Right. And also just, you know, a, qu- a, a couple of other quick hacks yeah. on that. Mm-hmm. No, f- no headers and footers. No headers resume. and footers. No Why headers not? And f- because it's, it, they can't always be read. And usually what people ah. have in the header is their contact information. 
Oh my gosh. Okay. So I use, when I write resumes for my clients, I use a simple word document mm -hmm. with just head, no templates, never use a template because mm -hmm. not, they don't all translate well in applicant tracking system software. Yes, yes. Simple word document, can't get screwed up. I put in a little pop of color in the headings. Uh-huh. And that's what people don't know and should. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, this is a great segue into our next question. Tell us a little bit about what you do, but tell us as if you're speaking to a five-year-old. Which I do very frequently having grandchildren. <laughs> okay. Wonderful. <laughs> so um, I help people find jobs by helping them explain to companies what, what they do and how well they do it. What they do and how well they do it. You help them do that better than perhaps they might do themselves. Usually I can't do it for myself as well as I can do it for other people, but that's, that's universally true. But if I wasn't talking to a five-year-old, right. I would say I'm creating your value proposition. Oh. So that when an actual pair of human eyes looks at your resume, the human being attached to those eyes can say, oh, this person is exactly who I'm looking for or not. Yeah. It's, it's interesting to me, right? Because you could have someone who's technically very gifted, but that may not translate into an ability to communicate that value to the type of person who's going to be receiving their resume. Absolutely true. And not only that, we think about particular job functions. I must have had 400 coders as clients in my career. And I can't tell you how many um, new business development specialists I've had. And if you look at what they do, it's all incredibly similar. So how do you, yeah, we're all unique individuals. So my job is to help everybody differentiate him or herself from everyone else who does exactly what they do. And it doesn't hurt to inject your personality in there because you know, I used to hire people all the time. I was the head mm -hmm. of HR. And when you look at a lot of resumes every day, you see these, these third-person, disembodied, you know, uh, amalgam of skill sets. And what you really would love is to actually feel like you're talking to a person. Because yeah. you know what that'll do? That'll inspire you to tell that person to come in for an interview so you can talk interactively. <laughs> <laughs> Right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, funny story. One person who interviewed me, and I actually ended up getting the job, told me the thing that he saw on my resume, not the thing that got me hired, but that piqued his interest, right. and he picked it up out of a pile, right. was the fact that I played volleyball. And that summer, he was looking for people, you know, who are interested in playing volleyball. He was like, hey, this guy's got a good resume, and he likes volleyball. <laughs> well, you know, you, you're bringing up something, and we're, this is going off in a tangent, but there's like, I, I don't know what to do about it. Okay. So I would tell a client not to put hobbies and sports on a resume. Okay. Fine to do it on a LinkedIn profile, but, yeah. you know, I personally never hired someone, but because they were also runners because I right, used to right. run, you know, I used to run mm. in competitively. Okay. I never hired someone because they did that. But if I went into someone's office or someone, uh -huh. came in, you know, on an interview myself or someone I was interviewing came in and saw a picture of me running through the finish line and they'd say, oh, you run, I run too. What's your best time? You know, <laughs> you run Boston. You know, I never made it to Boston. So yeah, it's great to connect on that level, but there's, that's why I always tell people, don't put things in your resume that people don't, people don't hire you because you belong to associations. Right. They hire you or they call you in for an interview because of what you've done. 
Ah, okay. Very granular, specific things you've done. Now, of course, you just mentioned that you got called in for an interview because of the volleyball. So I'm going to say it depends. If you really insist on it, I'll put it in there. Uh, I don't think it's in my resume anymore. Okay. <laughs> All right. Great, great. Well, I am so happy you're here today to talk about the topic of career moves. And let me tell you why. I feel like we've reached uh, a point in, in time and history and, and in the job market where, one, people are working longer. And also the nature of employment, I feel, is fundamentally shifting in a way that people can't really expect to work at GE for 40 years and then retire anymore. Like that's not the norm anymore. So because of that, my expectation is that people will have many careers or or many employers and maybe even different careers Mm. along the way. I'm just really looking forward to talking to you about some of your insights as to how that'll affect the way careers develop. So let me unpack that a little bit because there's a there's there's the issue of you know in the past people stayed with one employer for a long time and that's no longer true and then there's the issue of career pivots so let's take the former first um, so you know it's funny I I had a client this week who is an engineer and he worked with the same I won't say the name of the company but um, Fortune 50 company for 35 years and doesn't you know, was was startled to learn that that's going to be a, a very detrimental in his job search. Wow. Well, number one, only older people, only baby boomers like me, um, even come from that space where where it was a virtue to stay with one company from college to retirement. Mm-hmm. Um, millennials job hop. I don't. I have clients who are in their thirties and forties who, on average, stay at a job eighteen months to two years sometimes less. So that's the norm. So it's become a mindset of an employer that if you've been with one company for a really long period of time, you're a company man or woman. Mm-hmm. You don't know how to think in even your nomenclature is so tied into that company that you're not going to transition into a new employer very readily. So that's number one. Number two, career pivoting. And, and that's really a fascinating and tougher topic because, you know, you went to law school. And I'm assuming you enjoy being an attorney, but I can't tell you how many uh, attorneys I've spoken to who said, I can't do this anymore. I'm burned out. I want to do something else. Uh, I did. I mean, I had been on Wall Street in municipal bonds when I got out of college, and then I became an English professor. (laughs) (laughs) And then, you know, I needed, I wanted to make more money, so I went back to Wall Street, and I got back into so, you know, we, a lot of us make a lot of uh, career pivots throughout our lives. So I think it's not easy because a lot of the advice people give people who want to do that is take courses mm-hmm. and learn this new skill. And what they are leaving out is if you, if, you, if you were in IT and you've been studying financial analysis and now you want to get a job as an you know, as, as investment analyst, say, mm-hmm. You're going in on the entry level. and mm-hmm. But if you've been in IT for 10, 15 years, you're probably making way above an entry-level salary. Plus, right. you're probably not the appropriate age for an entry-level job. Right, right. So that's something people have to consider. The there's This is not a short conversation, but just to sort of put a cap on it, the the best way to make a career pivot is to do it internally in your own organization. 
where you're already a known entity and you could probably do it on a more lateral move because they know you. And, and the thing is network like crazy with the people in the department you want to get a job in so that when an opening comes up, one of them can say to the hiring manager, oh, you know Joe down in legal? Yeah, yeah. He'd be great doing HR. <laughs> Yeah, that makes so much more yeah. sense because if you don't have that background and you send, send your resume or even network with someone from a totally different company, they'll be like, what is this person thinking? I mean, that's why would we ever even consider this person versus exactly. in your own organization where they've already, you've proven yourself. They're like, hey, you know, we, we, we think this person would be great to leverage in a different area. So when I wanted to get into HR mm-hmm. and I had no job title that, that had to do with HR, I was doing oh. communications. Right. Um, f- for a third-party administrator for equity compensation plans. So I went to my CEO, who I was really tight with, and I said, I really want to do HR. And he said, what do you know about HR? We didn't have an HR department. We had somebody just doing the transactional stuff. And I said, we're growing. We need an HR person. Pay for me to take some certification courses. I went to Cornell University online. Uh-huh. got certified in employment law and benefits and compensation. And I just started doing it. He trusted me to do it mm-hmm. because he knew me. And then, of course, when I went to get my next job, I mm-hmm. could say I was HR manager. There you go. That's the way to do it. Great That's advice. Great advice. So let me ask you, outside of the specific tactics, right? Because I know so many people come through your doors that you've you know, helped, probably all of them dealing with change. What have you seen uh, in people's maybe personalities, outlooks, or philosophies, the people who seem to be able to more successfully navigate the change they're going through versus ones who may be struggling a little bit more? People who struggle are people who think in terms of what used to be instead of what's upcoming. Ah, uh, they're, they're grabbing on to the past. They can't, they can't let go. Yeah, and, and this is probably true um, across the generations, but it's, uh, I've noticed it, particularly among my own group of, of baby boomers. So, mm-hmm. you know, when you talk about baby boomers working in a workforce that's primarily millennial these days, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, I have friends who are in their 50s and 60s, and they're the only person who's not 37. <laughs> in the company and the why are they successful as was i because we didn't say oh that's you know you know how we used to do it this way or oh gosh i remember when we used to do it this way there's right. nothing in your mind anymore about we used to do it this way know it because having that basis of knowledge helps you as a springboard for new ideas it helps generate new thinking but you don't articulate that. You, you look around and you say, okay, how am I going to navigate the future? Not what did I do in the past? Let the past inform the future, but don't let it dictate it. Let the past inform the future. That's great advice. So let's take a look at someone who redefines the meaning of job search. Good afternoon. Hi, I'm Mr. Kramer. I've been pointing to see Mr. Ackerman. I did all of the copy on that. That was the most successful ad campaign they ever had. And I did the uh, idea, the layout, and most of the copy on that. Well, Mr. Kramer, I must say this is very impressive. Thank you. I would like to think about it and get back to you. Is there someone I should see, Mr. Ackerman, before you come to your decision? Mr. Spencer, our creative director. Why don't you let me see him right away? 
Oh, I'm sorry, but he's uh, leaving this evening on a two-week vacation, but I'll set something up the moment he gets back. I think... Have a nice holiday, and... Uh, I'll tell you, I'd like to see him right touch. away before he leaves. Well, Mr. Kramer, I, I don't... I want this position very much. Wait here. How do you do? All right, you got ten minutes. You do understand that the salary is uh, forty-eight hundred dollars a year less than you were making at Roth, Kane, and Donovan? Yes, I understand. Mr. Kramer, do you mind if I ask you why you're interested in a position for which you're clearly overqualified? I need the job. Uh, let me think about it. I'll let Jack know when you get done. No, this is a one-day only offer, gentlemen. You saw my book, you know I can handle the work. I'm willing to take a salary cut. The only thing is you're going to have to let me know today, not tomorrow, not next week, not at the, the end of the holidays. If you really want me, you make your decision right now. Uh, Mr. Kramer, can we talk uh, privately for a moment? Mr. Kramer, you got yourself a job. Congratulations. Really? <laughs> so, Linda, your thoughts? Oh, would that life were like a Hollywood movie. <laughs> <laughs> I can't begin to tell you how many fanciful notions were floated there. And, I'm and I want to hear what you think as well. Okay. But, you know, here, here's a little logic. I mean, here, here's the positive. It's a risky thing to kind of be quite that, uh, have that much chutzpah mm -hmm. <laughs> um, when you go on a job interview. That's, that's a pretty fine line to cross. I mean, you want to be assertive, and he was. He, he knew he had a great book, and, you, and even though our listeners can't, didn't see this, in the film, he deliberately leaves his portfolio on the desk when they ask him to leave so they can talk about it. Oh, uh, that's right. Right. So he's he's very confident. And that's that's good. Right. But here's where he blew it. I mean, first of all, there's no way that the first guy would have gotten the decision maker, the hiring manager, because Dustin Hoffman came across as a little too intense and okay. quite overbearing. Okay. Not a good strategy. So that wouldn't have even happened. But here's where he really blew it. When he was asked, why are you willing to take a job for less money and less prestige than you had? His uh -huh. answer was, I really need this job. Huh. What's the problem with that, Linda? Well, you know, people don't want to hire people who are desperate. De desperation doesn't work in any part of life. It doesn't yes. work in your love life. Yep. You have to marry me because I'm desperate. It doesn't work. <laughs> Go out with me or I'll, you know, never I'll yeah. enter a monastery. It, yeah. Desperation doesn't work. Uh -huh. and, and an employer has to be thinking, why is this person so desperate? Are they broke? Mm -hmm. Well, mm -hmm. a desperate person who's taking a job just because they need the money mm -hmm. it, or they're going to lose their apartment or in Kramer's case, lose child custody, you know, that's not a sign of a good employee. Employers hire people who are engaged, who are interested and curious about what it is um, that, that the tasks are that, that are put in of them they're not interested in hiring people who are just desperate because that doesn't translate into i'm going to work really hard and make you glad you hired me 
it, that's not what's going on in employers' minds. It's what's wrong with this person. Now, let me ask you, uh, hypothetically, if he had shared the actual reason, how do you think that might have played out? I see you shaking your head no. <laughs> yeah, I'm shaking my head no because there's a tendency during job interviews for people to overshare. Okay. That usually comes in when they're asked, why are you leaving your, why are you interested in leaving your current position? Yes. People start, to, well, you know, it, it's the, this guy I work for is really hard, you know, just don't overshare. Yeah. And, and for Kramer to have explained that he was going to lose a custody battle, it's none of their business. And that's not the issue. When you're looking for a job, you have to put yourself in the head of the person hiring. And all that person cares about is, Am I looking at the right person for this position? Does this person have what it takes? Not necessarily the skill set, because anyone can learn a skill. Uh-huh. But does this person have the drive, and will this person fit in culturally? Yeah, I, I think that's really useful. What I'm hearing from you is to look through the lens of the hiring manager or the company and conduct yourself in a way that gives them the information they need or or are interested in getting. Now, whether you fit that or not, you have no control over that, right? You can only share what what is about you, or you can't magically make something up. And maybe they don't like you because you're left-handed or something ridiculous like that. You can't change that about yourself. (laughs) But what you can do is, you know, if they don't care about whether you're left-handed or not, then why would you waste any breath talking about that? You talk about the portfolio. Exactly, exactly. You know, a lot of times people say to me, can't you make my resume a little more generic? And I say, why are you generic? Mm-hmm. If, if your resume is very specific about your brand mm-hmm. and your value proposition, mm-hmm. are you going to be the right candidate for as many potential interviews? No. Mm-hmm. But you're the right candidate for the job, that you, mm-hmm. the, the job that you're applying for. You might not get it because there probably are three or four other equally great candidates for that job. In fact, there are often three perfect candidates that, you know, the hiring manager and HR sit down trying to figure out, eeny, me. sometimes it's eeny, meeny, miny, mo. which one of these perfectly good people do we make the offer to? But the short thing I want people to think about is be very specific about who you are, and you may not have as many interview opportunities, but the ones you have are qualified. Ah, that's very interesting. So there's different levels. Okay. I've warned the audience in the past that I love this next movie so much that I will use as many clips from it and as often as my guests will let me in. Luckily, we agreed on this clip. So let's take a look. Would you walk us through a typical day for you? Yeah. Great. Well, I generally come in at least 15 minutes late. Uh, I use the side door, that way Lumberg can't see me. <laughs> and uh, after that, I just sort of space out for about an hour. Uh, space out? Yeah, I just stare at my desk, but it looks like I'm working. I do that for uh, probably another hour after lunch too. I'd say in a given week, I probably only do about 15 minutes of real, actual work. Uh, Peter, would you? Be a good sport and indulge us and just tell us a little more. Oh, yeah. Let me tell you something about TPS reports. TPS uh, The thing is, Bob, it's not that I'm lazy. It's that I just don't care. <laughs> don't 
Don't care. It's a problem of motivation, all right? Now, if I work my ass off and Initech ships a few extra units, I don't see another dime. So where's the motivation? And here's something else, Bob. I have eight different bosses right now. Uh, beg your pardon? Eight bosses. Eight? Eight, Bob. So that means that when I make a mistake, I have eight different people coming by to tell me about it. That's my only real motivation, is not to be hassled. That and the fear of losing my job, but you know, Bob, that'll only make someone work just hard enough not to get fired. Would you bear with me for just a second, please? Okay. What if, and believe me, this is so <laughs> hypothetical. But what if you were offered some kind of a stock option equity sharing program? Would that do anything for you? I don't know, I guess. Listen, I'm gonna go. Uh, it's been really nice talking to both of you guys. <laughs> Absolutely. The pleasure's all on this side of the table, trust me. Good luck with your layoffs, all right? I hope your firings go really well. What's the truth embedded in the comedy here, Linda? Okay, the truth is a lot of companies are, you know, woefully um, ill-prepared to motivate their employees. Um, you, you know, the comment about um, no matter how hard I work or don't work, and clearly he's not working, um, mm -hmm. it doesn't affect anything. So there's, their company isn't tying in their employees' professional growth, um, productivity into something that the, the employee can relate to. So there's clearly no mission. And, and if there's no mission for an employee to align with, they're not going to be motivated. People are motivated. You know, a lot of, a lot of people think that uh, compensation is the, is the primary motivation, and it's not. There's an instant endomorphin burst when you okay. get a raise or a bonus, and uh -huh. you feel good, but that, it doesn't last very long. Then you get very used to it. Okay. But if you go in every day feeling listened to and appreciated, yeah. and you go home at the end of the day feeling, wow, I really had a productive day, that motivates employees. And we know that from a gazillion studies. You could read yeah. the Harvard Business Review. But anecdotally, when you talk to HR people, um, a motivated, engaged workforce are, are people who understand why they're there. Yeah, and I, and I think in a sense, you know, for some people who stayed for a long time, there probably came a stage where it might have made sense for them to move somewhere else, maybe financially. But from a job satisfaction standpoint, they decide to stay put because they just love where they work. And if they went somewhere else, it you know, there's no guarantee that it would be as good of a company. So there's a certain kind of retention or, or, or appeal that you get when you treat your employees in a way that creates a bit more loyalty. So what I've noticed from looking at my clients' resumes is, is that the companies that are able to really motivate a retention among their employees are ones that are very open to their employees moving around. So uh. When I was really just burned out from doing communications about equity compensation plans, mm -hmm. you know, I really was interested in HR and my boss didn't want to lose me. Mm -hmm. And he was smart enough to say to me, yeah, sure. You know, there was an overlap. I had to do a little bit of both jobs for a while, but he was smart enough to say, sure, you as an employee are more important to us in the function. This gentleman I referenced a few minutes ago, who's been with the same company for over 30 years, he wasn't only making, he had seven different positions at this wow. company. Wow. Seven. And 
they weren't all progressively progressive levels of responsibility. I mean, some of them were at the beginning, but they were more, okay, you seem to, maybe you were getting bored doing this, so let's move you into this product and see what you can do there. And that's so motivating because it takes the road out of the person's work life and gives them fresh things and obstacles to think about and challenges. And again, you know, when you, when you think back, and this is almost a trite saying, but it's true, employees are a company's most valuable asset. So right. hang on to the asset by making sure those people are engaged, motivated, and don't worry so much about the functionality. Yeah. One thing I do fundamentally believe is at companies where they do those things you were just talking about, right? Caring for the individual, you know, more than the role, giving them opportunities to develop or explore different opportunities. Even when they leave the company, because maybe that's just the right time in their career or circumstances forces them to leave, you have created a really strong bond with this individual, a loyalty that will persist past them leaving the halls of that company and they will be an ambassador for your company if they have a chance to purchase from various competitors they're more likely to purchase from your company it's it's really a lot more than like hey what can we get you to do when you're in this cubicle or in this office oh sure and and more than just being willing to be a consumer of a company's product or service they're great referrals um, yes you created an, an employer brand as a brand ambassador, you know, someone could look you up on LinkedIn and say, oh, I see you just left working at company X, which is where I'm considering going. What are your thoughts? And you have nothing but positive things to say about it. That says a lot. There you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I love this next show for the writing and how they explore the psychology and humanity, maybe sometimes inhumanity, uh, in work and relationships. You said you wanted to see me? Yes, I did. You're Harry Crane, right? Yes, I am. Certain things have come to my attention. Oh, no. I heard about it third hand, and I thought it sounded reckless, so I talked to Mr. Cooper. Mr. Cooper knows about this? I think someone told on you, and it backfired. Mitch. Doesn't matter. Cooper thought it showed initiative. So, you're in here now. I'm smiling. What do you want? Uh, well, <clears throat> I guess, uh, for one thing, I think that we should have a television department. All the other agencies have them. And I think I should run it. You are now the head of the television department, which is comprised solely of you. Anything else? Well, actually, um, <clears throat> I think I deserve a raise. And I think you've already received a sizable reward. Let's not get greedy. I'm not being greedy. Are you arguing with me? How much do you make? $200 a week, plus drinks. Give me a number. Uh, how about 310? <laughs> no one makes that around here, not even close. How about two and a quarter? Say yes. Yes. I'll throw a new business card. You drive a hell of a bargain. Linda, what just happened here? Uh, 
you know, I come from that generation where that's what the office was like. <laughs> and, and so I really want to hear it from your perspective first. Well, you know, it was interesting. He, he, he got what he wanted, but when he asked for the raise, he didn't really sound like he believed in himself when, when he asked for the raise. It was kind of like, I'd like a raise? And he kind of raised his voice like it was a question. Yeah, yeah, that's very true. I don't think you'll see, and you tell me, I don't think you see in the, in fact, I'm sure you don't see in the workplace anymore, uh, managers who treat their employees in quite such an intimidating and, uh, I mean, that was terrible. He knew damn well what the guy's name was, but he had to say, who are you, Harry Crumb? How do you think you asked him to come see you? <laughs> I mean, really. So I think that's gone mm-hmm. out of the workplace, or at least mm-hmm. there's a, a more um, polite and PC face on it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, even when, even when he got up and stood up, it was kind of like after the guy, you know, asked for the raise, he stood up and it was kind of like intimidating, right? Very intimidating. It, everything was, you know, and, and he didn't give him any room to negotiate when he, when he said, I'll give you two and a quarter, say yes. Without, he didn't even take a breath. He didn't right. allow a pause. He was actually intimidating him into saying yes, which he did. So, so here's the thing. You know, people ask all the time, how do you negotiate a raise? Okay. So you don't go in there and say, I think I deserve a raise. Mm-hmm. You, have, you go in there and say, I have achieved this, 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 and this. Okay. Or I've met these goals. And I, I, I believe my value to this company is now worth X. Hmm. And, and what do you think stops people from doing that? Fear. Yeah. Fear of what, though? Fear of angering their manager. Okay. So, so there are a couple of things. First of all, every company has um, a specific designated time of year when they will do performance reviews, and they shouldn't, but they usually tie raises and bonuses into, into the performance review. Right. I think they're two separate issues, but let's put that aside for now. Okay. So, so it's, there's either a scheduled designated time to discuss this or you, on an ad hoc basis, you feel something has happened that you deserve a raise. So if it's, you know, you, you might feel as if going in during an ad hoc period and saying, I know it's not time for raises, but I've been doing X, Y, and Z and it's nine months until the next um, time, you know, there's going to be a salary increase discussions. I'd like to initiate it now. Mm-hmm. You could potentially people are, I think are afraid of annoying their, their manager because they're not following a procedure. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you, the way around that is to preface it with, mm-hmm. you know, address the elephant in the room. I know this is not the procedural time to discuss this and maybe there's nothing you can do about it now but I wanted to get my thoughts on this on the table and hear yours. Yeah. I think there's a real benefit of even just making the ask, as long as you do it in a professional and considered way to be the type of person who values themselves enough and, and has the, I don't know if courage is, is right, but you know, has, has the ability to say, Hey, you know, this is what I think I deserve. I'm going to ask for it. You can say no but I'm the type of person who's going to speak up for myself. I mean, there's a certain value in that, 
in and of itself. Hopefully you get the raise as well. But I feel like when you do that, there, it's, it's very powerful. And at the end of the day, you don't regret doing it regardless of the result. I agree. Um, but here's a place where you can actually preempt that discussion and build it into your offer letter. Okay. So let's say um, I write you an offer letter at uh, 75000 a year. Okay. And you really wanted eighty-five or ninety, right? And you say to me, "Well, I was hoping it could be a little, you know. Thank you so much for the offer, but I was hoping it was going to be about fifteen higher." Yeah. And I say, "Gee, unfortunately, my hands are tied. Um, I only have it in the budget right now to offer seventy-five. That's our top salary that I was budgeted for this position. So you, the employee or future employee, could say." How about this? Could we modify my offer to reflect that if I reach certain performance goals that the hiring manager or you, the hiring manager, want to lay out for me, that in six months I'll get the bump? Right. So here's, here's what that could accomplish. Either your goal, that right. in six months you're bumped from 75 to 90, but it also, as you pointed out, shows the employer that you know perfectly well what you're worth you're going to get there. Yeah. You know, yeah. you're going to get there. You're going to demonstrate, but it shows that you're willing, that you understand that a salary increase should be tied into you reaching the goals that are set out for you, not just showing up and phoning it in. And, and I think what's great about that approach too, is you're already showing before you start on the job that you can collaborate and figure out ways to problem solve, right? I mean, if you take it on its face value that what they're telling you the truth, well, that's fine, but maybe there's some budroom after you get in there with the example uh, you shared. I mean, that's, that's phenomenal. Excellent point, Joe, really. I mean, yeah, collaborate. So be on the same side. You want to hire me. I want to work for you. Let's see how we can make this, you know, something that we can both, you know, feel comfortable with. Yeah, and, and I think it also goes back to your fear um, observation, right? It's it's the fear often prevents us from doing something or even proposing something, which which would be great for both parties. Because one, they get to hire the best applicant, and two, you get to go in there and not feel any, I guess, resentment or hesitation in doing your job because you feel like you're being underpaid. Right, and just hearkening back to what we were saying uh, during the Kramer versus Kramer shot, mm -hmm. you know. Um, it's, it's really not a good idea to go in for, to a salary negotiation and say, listen, you know, my maintenance or my rent just went up and I can't afford to work here anymore. <laughs> they don't care. Not my problem. And, you know, maybe they do care. You're a colleague. I'm sure they do care, but it's not the issue. It's not the basis. Yeah. Salary is based on what your value is to a company and not on what your personal needs are. That's right. Absolutely. So let's take a look at an example of young ambition. You can't come in here, bozo. Take your crap to the mail slot. I work here. To start. What do you want? An engraved invitation? Come on, come on. Brantley, huh? Yeah. Somebody gave you that name? Oh, Jesus, a college pupil. This really makes my day. Well, you're welcome. Melrose, get over here! Hey, 
Listen to what he says, then do what he does. Right. Stay out of my way. Don't use a stamp machine for personal letters and take off that stupid-looking tie. It looks like you shot your couch. You got any questions? Yeah, what do I call you? You call me God. You got a problem, boss? I'm your man. Show the college puke the ropes and keep him out of my face. His name is Brantley. All right, kid. Follow me. All right, Brantley, you stick with me and everything's gonna be copacetic. Twice a day you deliver, like a mailman, you pick up whatever's going out. I can do it in 30 minutes. Radigan thinks it takes me two hours. Okay, what's this department? What do they do here? Who knows, man? This place is a zoo. Nobody knows what anybody else is doing. Can you get promoted out of the mailroom? You can't even get paroled out of the mailroom. Excuse me, dear. Morning. Next. What? Morning. Look, not the suits. What do you mean? Excuse me, sir. Morning. Look, not the suits, man. You never consort with the suits unless they consort with you first. Wait a minute, that's ridiculous. He's a person. I'm a person. I can't say a lot of him. He's not a person. He's a suit. Your mailroom. No consorting. Right. What can we learn here, Linda? Um, that's a primer for how not to treat people. <laughs> <laughs> What do you learn from it, Joe? What I see there is, in a way, his inexperience is better or has keyed him into something that is more universal than someone who's been part of a system and has kind of been, I don't know, if hypnotized or been indoctrinated into like, this is the only way things can work, right? And so there's almost no possibility for him to consider any other way of, of operating. And that kind of limits his options, right? He's like, you can't even get paroled out of here. That guy has already decided he will never leave the mailroom, right? Whereas Michael J. Fox's character, he has a sort of a different sense of what's possible. And I think that's important. It's very important. And, and despite the soul-sucking nature of the head of the mailroom wanting to be God and, and only feeling comfortable with people who have lost their ambition if they have had it. <laughs> So you could tell, and again, listeners couldn't see this, but the expression on Michael J. Fox's face was, yeah, I hear what you're saying, but I'm not going to do that. Mm-hmm. He's going to continue saying hello to the suits. Mm-hmm. And it's an excellent way of getting noticed. And mm-hmm. even though the, the head of the mailroom probably has zero interest in helping people advance out of the mailroom, Mm-hmm. Once higher-ups get to know you, they will. Mm-hmm. And there's another show um, that's that's on TV now, um, mm-hmm. Better Call Saul. Okay. And uh, the character Jimmy McGill and his girlfriend Kim were both in the mailroom. And Kim was studying for her law degree while she was – they both were studying for law degrees while they worked in the mailroom – but Kim would stop and engage with the partners and say, um, I just read the brief that you wrote about this particular case, sir. And right. she offered a, a comment on it. Right. And she went up, she became an associate as soon as she passed the bar. Right. So that's. Whereas he, did, where he didn't do that. And so that was not even an option for. Well, for he had, you know, he had in that story, a million other obstacles. <laughs> okay. Namely, okay, that one one of the partners was his brother who didn't like him. Oh, okay. But, 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 but if Michael J. Fox in that film does what Kim does, and what I think he instinctively knows is the right thing to do, he's going to dress for the position he wants to assume, not the one mm-hmm. he has now. 
-hmm. And he's going to show, he seems to understand that he can do it respectfully. He wasn't saying, he wasn't trying to impress anybody with some pithy comment. But he was simply, as one human being to another, saying hello. He was dressed appropriately for a professional. Uh-huh. And as they get to know him, you know, and they see him more often, they'll, there can be a, a, a minute or two conversation that it will grow and evolve and he'll get out of the mailroom. Yeah, you know, this is really great. One of the things I'm getting out of uh, your observations, Linda, is in work and just in life in general, you can't control how people are going to treat you, right? But the, the level to which they will treat you, the ceiling of that is determined by how well you treat yourself and how you conduct yourself, right? So if you treat yourself like you're going to be stuck in the mailroom, then no one's going to see the potential in you or say, hey, maybe this could be a potential colleague someday. I totally agree. And I, I would add one more thing. Ask questions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You're not annoying a senior executive when you mm-hmm. go into that per- or a middle manager. You're not annoying that person if you ask a question. Maybe yeah. they're busy and they say, you know what, i why don't you stop by around six o'clock tonight and I'll be happy to give you a more in-depth answer. They're going to be flattered that you asked Uh number uh one. So they're Uh not probably most people wouldn't be annoyed. Uh And that gives you an opportunity. You know, the fact that you're curious and interested speaks volumes about your potential and trust me, they will remember. Yeah. People love people who want to grow and learn and, and they want to participate in that. You know, I had an admin. I shared him with our CEO and our head of sales. Mm -hmm. Um, And he was right out of college in 2007. He's now the the head of regional West Coast sales for the company, Mm -hmm. making way more than I ever did in HR. (laughs) You know how he did it? When we were stuck doing RFPs, I would always say... um, go find this out for me, please. Or could you, could you grab somebody and get them to get me this answer, please? And he did it. He didn't say, that's not part of my job. He just did it. And he learned the answers. He didn't just copy and type. So he started to know more about the inner workings of every aspect of the company. Uh Certainly more than I did. Yeah. And you know, once he owned the RFP process, his trajectory up the ladder was pretty swift. We all noticed him. And, and you know what I love about that, too? Like, if he had had that mentality where, look, I'm Linda's admin, and my ceiling is always below her, he never would have ascended to the level that he's at, right? Way above mine. <laughs> <laughs> but that only happens if, if he doesn't limit himself, right? If, if, if he thinks, I'm going to do the best work I can, I'm going to see how far I'm going to go, and I'm not going to place any artificial barriers on it due to hierarchy or, or ranking. And he worked for employers who didn't have that hierarchical attitude that, you know, you can't, uh, you can't come from, uh, you know, a, a lower position and, and better yourself and, and learn more and, and grow because he did. We saw the ambition in him mm-hmm. and we were happy to help feed it. Yeah, that's a great success story. Thanks for sharing it. Uh, last video here. I've always found it interesting that a lot of famous people, we feel like they're kind of born into what they end up being famous for, but that's not always the case. So let's take a look at an example of that. What should I do, you think? About what? I don't really want to go back into government work. Mm-hmm. You know, but I, shouldn't I find something to do? 
wives don't do anything here. That's not me. This is not me. I know. Mm. I saw a notice on the bulletin board at the embassy for hat making lessons. You like hats? I do. I do. No. I do. What is it that you really like to do? Each. <laughs> I like to do. No, no, I know, I know, and we are so good at it. Look at you now. Growing in front of you. I was thinking of taking bridge lessons. You like bridge? I do. I like the idea of bridge. Four points for an ace, three points for a king, two points for a queen, one point for a jack, and breast your cards. Do you have any French cookbooks in English? I'm afraid not. Gosh, j'ai essayé d'acheter un livre de cuisine française, 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 en anglais, mais the uh, the proof uh, the salesperson, vendeuse, vendeuse, had no idea because you see there is no French cookbook in English. What stands out to you here, Linda? Uh, such a familiar process for so many of us, isn't it? You're talking to a sympathetic spouse who wants to be supportive, who has a career he or she loves, and you're just lost. You don't know what to do. You know, you try hobbies, and some people are successful at turning a hobby into a career, but she kind of fell into it organically. While she was studying hat making and bridge and, you know, French lessons while she was, and we're talking about Julia Child, so every, sure. in case anyone didn't recognize the film, she needed a cookbook because she was a lousy cook. <laughs> oh, okay. I don't know if you know her biography. She was a terrible cook. She could make three things. Wow. So she was looking for a cookbook and she couldn't find one. As she's looking for one and she realizes there's a niche there's something that if I need it, other people likely need it, then I can, I can fill that niche. I can create something. So she fell or very organically into her career by looking for something that she enjoyed. She does like to eat. <laughs> and she was looking for a vehicle to enable it, realized the tool she needed didn't exist, so she created it and founded an empire. It's interesting. Some people do that and other people maybe may have that idea in their grasp and they don't do anything with it. Well, you know, I think it's always a good idea to have a side gig. Mm -hmm. You know, keep your day-to-day -day bread and butter employment and experiment with side gigs. And, uh, you know, I have someone who assists me with, with some of the simpler resumes. She's currently employed. She's in H HR. She's yeah. not sure how long the job will exist. So she's exploring doing what I do, 
by taking on as a little side gig doing some work for me. Another friend of mine is looking to build an affiliate marketing website because she knows her job is going to be gone in three months. Oh, here's another one. My former trainer was an exec marketing executive at L'Oreal. Wow. Your trainer, um, like your, your, your physical, like, like the gym yeah, trainer. My <laughs> physical gym trainer. Um, she was an executive at L'Oreal. She had almost a year's advance warning that the position was being phased out. So she trained. She got licensed to be a trainer. She found a niche market. She was a, a middle-aged woman, so her niche client were middle-aged women right and she had quite a successful little practice wow get a side hustle going and you can experiment without you know betting the farm on on your new career direction i think that's wonderful advice especially when you have the sort of security and resources and not the extra stress in this business that, that, that I've yeah. spun up and, you know, I can't pay for my mortgage or my kid's college tuition if that fails. That kind of fear doesn't help you make the right decisions, doesn't help you run the business in the way that is, makes it more likely to succeed. Right, right. So I would say that, you know, it's, oh, there, there, of course, there are people who find themselves in positions where if they don't make that move, they're kind of, uh, screwed anyway in which case you have nowhere else to go but up but Mm -hmm. for most of us we can plan ahead maybe we have a spouse and we can exist on one salary for a short period of time maybe you do have as in the examples i gave you have some warning or severance Mm -hmm. um, that you can rely on for a few months but it's always a good idea let's say you're perfectly happily um, employed and you don't foresee any end to that in the foreseeable future have a side gig you never know yeah. Find something you're passionate about so it won't feel like double work. And there it is if you ever need it. Well, one thing I love about that advice, Linda, and I actually take that advice to heart, is there's a real kind of confidence in knowing and proving to yourself before it's desperate times that you can earn money and provide value outside of a very specific system. Right. So if you think about jobs like people like you and I have or have had, it's a specific system, right? It's a it's a large company. They pay a certain way. They promote a certain way. If the only way you can produce income is within that system and the system decides that they don't need you anymore or you are no longer valuable or the industry goes away, that's a very scary thing. Right. And then now you're like, well, I don't know how else I could earn a dollar out outside of that. So I I can think of three specific examples, two people in our networking group and ourselves. Mm -hmm. Uh, Should I mention names? Yeah, go for it. Okay, so John White has written quite a lot on LinkedIn and in Inc. um, about how he was laid off and really didn't know what to do with himself. He had Mm -hmm. two children. He has two children, a mortgage, (laughs) the whole all-American scene. And he created a business for himself and he's very successful now just leveraging off of a, a brand new skill set. He got his MBA. He learned about social media. He learned about, you know, getting found and he helps clients brand themselves and, and be featured in media. Great. So that's one example. Larry Border, who's a brilliant data analyst. Love Larry. Um, yeah, I love Larry too. He's, he's been a source of inspiration for me on a lot of things. So Larry knew, you know, had quite a bit of advance notice that his position was coming to an end. He wrote a book. 
Yep. While he, you know, that was his side hustle. His book came out. Um, he's got lots going on. He's mm-hmm. now known as an author and he's recognized as an authority on the subject of artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he also makes quite a nice living doing data analytics. Mm-hmm. And for me, I was, um, I was phased out of my position in HR change of control in the company the new person i would have reported to had his own hr person mm-hmm. got a nice package and i was you know sitting there thinking comfortably you know i had a nice package i didn't have to worry about you know money for several months but then it occurred to me hr so you know it it actually didn't occur to me a cousin of mine called me up and said um, I'm going to have to start looking for a job soon. You're in HR. Like, could you look at my resume? And I looked at it. Oh, this is awful. You know? <laughs> let, me, let me fix it for you, cuz. And then he said, wow, this is great. The light bulb has still not gone on. Then he said, can I send some of the people on my team to you? Uh-huh. And I said, well, I should probably charge them money, right? Yeah. And he said, oh, Yeah. <laughs> So I, I, I didn't even know how to value myself. I'm embarrassed to sit, tell you what I was charging. Um, <laughs> but I would say I've quintupled it. <laughs> well, that was your Julia Child moment, right? That was my Julia Child moment. What a niche. Someone in HR who knows what the product is supposed yes. to look like being the one producing the product. I love yeah. that story. So it's, it's doable, folks. Have a side hustle. Great advice. Linda, it's been a real treat to talk to you and hear your insights on career moves. What projects or updates would you like to share with the audience and how can people get in touch with you? Okay, well, um, LinkedIn has uh, a pilot program out where I have a series called The Smart Way to a New Job. So if you go on LinkedIn um, and click on it, you can subscribe to um, the articles I'll be writing on that topic resumes, cover letters, interviewing, and salary negotiation will be covered every two weeks. There'll be an article, so that's what's going on now. And anyone who would like to get in touch with me, my website is www.risingstarresumes.net. And uh, my phone number and my email address are on the site. I'm on LinkedIn at, at @risingstarres. Great. And I'll share all of that information for our audience in the show notes. Great. Great. Thank you, Linda, for sharing your insights on why it works. Thank you so much for inviting me, Joe. I had so much fun. Like Orlando and tourism, a great book to go with this podcast is The Robot in the Next Cubicle, What You Need to Know to Adapt and Succeed in the Automation Age. Larry Boyer not only explains the history and future of industrial revolutions, he provides a roadmap for thriving to receive a free copy of The Robot in the Next Cubicle or another audiobook of your choice, just go to audibletrial.com slash whyitworks. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash whyitworks for your free audiobook. To support our show, please leave a rating or comment or become a sponsor of Why It Works by going to www.patreon.com slash whyitworks. That's www.patreon.com slash why it works. Thank you. And remember, the enemy of learning is boring. Thanks for listening to this episode of Why It Works. For more information about Joe Kwon Joe Coaching, 
as well as access to my articles, videos, and podcasts, visit joquanjo.com. And stay tuned for our next Why It Works adventure.